Inside Books with Breda Brown. Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Breda Brown and in each episode of Inside Books, we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers and more. You'll find Inside Books on SoundCloud or iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Our Twitter handle is at InsideBooksIRE, where you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. This episode is a very special programme as it was an interview I did with the best-selling crime author Peter James at the Murder One Crime Festival in Dublin. It was recorded in front of a live audience in Smock Alley and includes some great questions from the audience. So sit back and enjoy this fascinating insight into the writing life of Peter James. Delighted to have you all here this evening. This is Peter James. Hi. So we've much to talk about tonight, but just to uh, put it into context, he is a number one best-selling crime author, in case you didn't know that. He's written 35 books, 35. You could have stopped at 10, but you kept going. You've sold 19 million copies, translated into 37 languages, and was named the greatest crime author of all time, as well as lots and lots of other awards. What's actually really interesting about Peter is even before he put pen to paper or put the, uh, the fingers to the, uh, to the typewriter or to the computer, he actually had a whole career in international TV and in movies. So we'll have a little chat about that later on. You've worked with the likes of Donald Sutherland, Peter Sellers, uh, Stephanie Powers, Sharon Stone, Michael Caine, and even our own uh, Gabriel Byrne. So we've huge amount to, to talk about. His new book is called Absolute Proof. You're all going to love it. It is a brilliant religious thriller. And what's interesting is, Peter has said, it's actually the hardest book he has ever written. Um, but it's one of uh, the ones that you're most excited about. Yeah. So there you go. So welcome to Ireland. Welcome to uh, Dublin. It's you great do- to be back. Yeah, I was um, going to say you travel a lot. So do you, do you get over here much? I was here last about... Uh, three years back, we had a, the play of my novel, Perfect Murder, was touring. I saw it. It was in the, uh, the Borgosh Energy yeah, Theatre. Yeah, but I, I, I love Ireland. I, I used to come here a lot as a kid, fishing. My dad was a very keen fisherman. So we'd have a kind of routine. We'd fly to Cork, go to Kinsale, do deep sea fishing there, which my mother would always get seasick. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd have to return to harbour and drop her off and then go back out again. Um, and then we go to Waterville in Kerry and, and, and go fly fishing for about a week. And, and I just loved it. I know that when you are traveling, you look for inspiration for your plots. So what we all want to know is, during all those times when you were, when you were a child, were you percolating plots for, uh, for the books that have ended up on shelves? When I was deep sea fishing, I was always hoping that one day, rather than pulling up a skate from the bottom... I'd pull up a nice cadaver. (laughs) (laughs) um, It didn't happen, did it? No, and I'm glad it didn't, actually. (laughs) I I, I did go, in one of my um, novels, in Dead Tomorrow, I I wrote about the police dive team. And I I always thought that being a police diver was probably quite nice. You know, you swan around and flippers and snorkel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, until they took me on a training exercise and, sh- and, and showed me what they really do. Tough job. Uh, it's the worst job in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, because if they find a body, they, they scan, and if they find a body, they always dive in two-man pairs and they send one down to the bottom. And the bottom of the English Channel or 
pretty much anywhere they go. They're diving in canals, lakes, whatever. You can see nothing, like zero visibility. Mm -hmm. So they do everything by hand, search. They, Feeling they, around. Yeah, yeah, they drop a line down and they feel their way along it for 200 meters and then they move the weight and go back. If they find a body, they have to hug it really? to stop the current moving it. Anybody that's been down there for more than like four days is going to be completely covered in prawns, lobsters and other stuff. And they radio to the surface and, and another diver comes down with a body bag and they have to kind of get this body, and it's probably so rotted, bits will come off it. And I'm thinking, <laughs> could you imagine sitting on the bottom of the ocean with, with this, all these creatures crawling all over you in complete darkness? But I'm sure it's ended up in a couple of books somewhere along the line. Yeah, and, yeah. and most of the police officers I've met who are divers never eat shellfish. <laughs> <laughs> We might be ordering differently then the next time we all go out for dinner. Um, so I suppose, look, you know, it's, it's, you've had such an interesting, interesting career. And what I'd love to do is sort of, sort of walk, us, walk us through it a little bit. But just to go back to the early days, Brighton is where, where it all began, really. And you still have a, have a huge love for that area. It's in, it's in all the Roy Grace novels. Um, and as a child, you know, was reading part of that, was writing part of, of your childhood? Yeah, I was... Uh I started writing when I was seven. I, wrote my, I remember writing my, I used to keep a notebook by my bed. I never, ever, ever dreamed that anybody would ever want to read anything I wrote. I, I, I wasn't a very confident kid at all. And one of the first pearls of wisdom I wrote down was, life is a bowl of custard. It's all right until you fall in. <laughs> uh, very poetic. I, I've kept that away yet, but one day. But what, what changed my life was when I was 14, I read Graham Greene's Brighton Rock for the first time. How many of you have read it? Yes. Anyone who hasn't read it, who likes just reading, and you obviously all like reading because you're here, I think it is one of the greatest, possibly one of the two greatest crime thrillers ever written. Why well, do you think that? It changed, for me, it changed the landscape. Up until I kind of for years wanted to be a crime, I did dream of being a crime writer, but I felt that to be a crime writer, there were certain rules and conventions that you had to adhere to in, in England. They're very much in the kind of vein of the Agatha Christie novels and the Golden Age novels, where you had to have a certain set of rules and conventions. So one, country house setting. <laughs> Two, dead body in the library. <laughs> Three, a free song of religion. Four, little bit of sex. A little bit. Very little. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> and a little bit of violence. So I came up with what I thought was the perfect opening line. Fuck me, I've been shot, <laughs> said the vicar's wife. <laughs> as her knickers hit the library floor <laughs> of Ponsonby Towers with a crash. I, I have spared my readers that so far. <laughs> but then I read Brighton Rock, and what blew me away about that book was three things. Firstly, it didn't have a dead body in a country house in the first chapter, and the rest of the book wasn't the puzzle to solve it. It had one of the best opening lines, I think, ever written. Within three hours of arriving in Brighton, Hale knew they meant to murder him. You kind of have to read on. Who is Hale? Why is he in Brighton? Who's going to murder him? And, and it goes on beautifully. Secondly, it taught me that within a crime novel, 
you didn't just have to write a cosy puzzle for your readers to solve. You could actually deal with very serious human issues. Mm -hmm. And in Brighton Rock, the central character, Pinky, is a horrible 17-year-old scumbag villain in charge of this bunch of middle-aged misfit, second-rate criminals. And Pinky is a murderer. He's also a devout Catholic, mm. terrified of eternal damnation. So you've got this wonderful look at Catholicism through the eyes of, of this horrible little criminal. And it also has, and I won't give it away, I think it's got still today probably the darkest psychological ending of, of any novel I've ever read in my life. And I put that book down and I thought, one day I, I want to try and write a crime novel set in Brighton that's, that's 10% as good as Brighton Rock. I think you did that, did you? 11%. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, with, before all of the books, it was about film and it was about movies and uh, TV. So how did, how did that come before the writing then? So w w did you just love movies and film as you were growing up? Yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was always a movie addict. And I, and I never believed I would ever make a living as, as an author. And I went to one of the, first, the first film school that started up in England. It was a film and television school. And I left that and in 1970. And it was impossible to get a job in England at that time, television or film. And I had an uncle in Toronto, and he said, come out here, it's all happening. And I, I got a job on a daily program for preschool children. It was a puppet show called Polka Dot Door. And I was what's called a gopher, which is the lowest human life form on the television set. <laughs> you literally go for this, go for that, mm -hmm. run the errands. And one day the, the producer came in a panic and said, the writer's sick, we don't have a show today. Uh, I read your CV, you won your school poetry prize, can you write today's show? <laughs> and they sat me in a corner with an IBM Selectric golf ball and, and I wrote the show and they, they were happy and I ended up writing it for the next year and a half. So you went from dreaming about being a crime, this grisly crime author, to actually writing for children's television. For yeah, for preschool children. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know, you could call this lucky break, but you know, I, I'm... If I was in a really lucky break, I'd be in Hollywood working with glamorous stars. Here I am, stuck in the coldest city on the planet with five bullshit puppets. Um, but then I met a draft dodger called... Well, uh, he, he, he'd been up there as a draft dodger called Bob Clark, and he was trying to put together a horror movie called Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. Oh, <laughs> and it was very easy here. to raise money in Canada in those days. There were, there were kind of tax breaks for investors, and he, he was trying to raise $60,000. I basically, I went around all my uncle's friends and persuaded them to put up the money. And we made this film, and it did relatively really well. And we then, so I made a kind of, for the next few years, started making just low-budget horror films with very tasteful titles like um, Blood Orgy of the She-Devils, <laughs> I Dismembered Mama, <laughs> and a film about a hamburger restaurant called The Corpse Grinders. I won't go into the details of that. And then I decided I, I wanted to write... Comedy was what I wanted to do. So I wrote and produced a comedy called Spanish Fly with Terry Thomas and Leslie Phillips. And it came out, and Barry Norman called it the worst British film since the Second World War. <laughs> How and did that least... make you feel? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't great. <laughs> um, and, I, and I kind of... Just, I then spent really the next sort of 20 years making films, mostly pretty rubbish ones. I did make a, one or two. I was proud of Merchant of Venice with Al Pacino. And, well, you were nominated for a BAFTA for that. Yeah. So, and that was, uh, Jeremy Irons was in that as well. Yes. So, yeah. 
And did you enjoy the whole movie and film side of it? I did. Was it a creative outlet, really? No. No, really? No, because the problem with the movie business is that you've got, like, when you write a novel, it's you. And I don't have to change a single word. When you make a movie, you're dealing with 20 different egos. Mm. Um, You're dealing with probably two or three other producers. The director who says, it's my film, darling. You've got your four lead actors who say, actually, it's our film, darling. Um, the director of photography says, it's my film, darling. Uh, and then his assistant says, he's an arsehole. I saved the fil- <laughs> film. And then you this get the... Uh, and, the <laughs> and then you get the uh, production designer who says, actually, the film was a disaster. I, I, I bailed it out. And then the editor says, it was a nightmare. It's only my editing that saved it. Uh, and then the composer says, the film was shit. It was the music that bailed <laughs> And then the distributor says, we don't like the ending, can you reshoot it? And you fight a battle all the time. Not only that, you're fighting these monstrous egos all the time. Mm. Um, I also, I'm just to give you an example of, of kind of ego. I, the same, back in 1974, I made a film with Peter Sellers. And then we also had a company making TV commercials. And we got the gig to do the, for Benson Hedges cigarettes. And Peter, they wanted Peter Sellers, and they paid him the highest amount of money ever paid to an actor for one day's work. How much? £100,000. 1974. Really? And it was him and Spike Milligan and the other, another actor, J- Jeremy Villiers. He used to play sort of platinum-haired old Etonian villains. And we were filming it in Cyprus. And we only had Sellers for one day. He was being flown in at 7 in the morning, out at 7 in the evening, and then he was off to Australia. Gone. And we're done. And the script was that Sellers was standing outside this customs warehouse, bonded warehouse. Spike Milligan goes inside in a Macintosh, and there's gold ingots. Instead of Benson Hedges, but instead of gold ingots, it's packets of Benson Hedges gold cigarettes. And he puts them in these pouches, and he gets heavier and heavier. The alarm rings. He runs down the jetty, jumps in the getaway boat, goes straight through the bottom. That was the script. So we, we were all there. Sellers is flown in gets on set, and, and, and the director says, OK, Peter, it was Hungarian, Peter Milat. You are standing outside the warehouse. You're nervous. You like the cigarette. So I says, I- I've decided I'm against smoking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nightmare. <laughs> I um, point out to him that the reason he's there is to make a cigarette commercial. That's why he's being paid the highest amount of money ever paid to that. We have a standoff for three hours, and eventually the, the, the client was there, Colin Dickinson Pierce. They said, Look, why don't we just swap? Spike smokes the fag, Peter does the. Okay, Spike, solidarity with my friend Peter. <laughs> and in the end, Jeremy Villiers says, Look, fuck it, I'll smoke the bloody thing. <laughs> I was going to say. Did he want the 100 grand as well, though? No? Did it for less. Mm, exactly. <laughs> and you worked with, as we mentioned there earlier on, some huge names, um, and including Richard. Burton and Elizabeth Taylor at one point. That was on Under Milkwood. Yeah. Go on, spill the beans. <laughs> that was 1972. They, they, Where were they, they at they in their were, relationship at that point? Were they yeah, married yeah, or remarried? Was, or? A little turbulent. Yeah, okay. <laughs> like, you're not coming out of a caravan every other day and stuff. Yeah, yeah interesting. Um, Orson Welles. Now, I've heard this story a few times, but I'm not sure if it's true or not, and you're going to have to have to tell us whether it is. Did you work in his house as a cleaner at one point? Yeah. Really? I, I was at, when I was at film school, and, and my, my dad gave me enough money to pay the rent and to get to college and, and to eat. And I met this very posh bird. She was, a, she was a dead at the time. And I wanted to take her out to dinner. I wanted to take her to the Mirabelle in London, which was then the fanciest restaurant. 
expensive. And I didn't have the money. And I thought, I'm going to have to earn some money somehow. And I walked, I was, I was living off the Fulham Road, and I walked past a news agent. It said, Cleaner wanted uh, 10 shillings an hour, apply Mrs. Wells. So I thought well, I could do that. So I went straight round to the, the address and knocked on the door, and this very smart lady looked at me, and she was very polite, and she said, I was, at, I was really expecting a female to come. I said, I, 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 I could do it. So she said, all right, I'll, I'll, try, I'll take you on this morning for three hours trial, and let's see how you get on. So she put me in the kitchen and said, can you clean the kitchen? Now, I don't, I'm not meaning to sound posh, right? But my, my mother, both my parents worked. And you know, my mother was a glove maker. And in those days, this is, I'm talking about the kind of 50s and 60s, we had live-in staff and we had a cook and, and, and a maid and I had a nanny. And I, I wasn't allowed in the kitchen. At all? So I'd, really? I'd, I'd barely been in the kitchen in my life. Could you boil an um, egg? I just knew it was a hatch that food came through. <laughs> so I went in there and I rummaged around in the cupboards and to my eternal good fortune, I found a packet of something called Flash. Right. And I read the... Inst- and there was a... In those days, there were television ads all the time. All around the house, spring clean with Flash. <laughs> and I read the instructions. It said, mix with hot water. And so I read the instructions and I cleaned the kitchen with it. And she came in... Three hours later, and was, was really impressed. She said, all right, I'll, I'll take you on for a month's we'll trial. We'll keep you, yeah, good. I'll take you on for a month's trial, 10 shillings an hour, three mornings a week. So I started a couple of days later, and she wanted me to do the skirting board in the hall. And this wasn't a grand house. It was a nice terraced sort of semi in, in, on the Earl's Court, Fulham border. And the first day, I'm on my knees cleaning the skirting board, and suddenly all these mail plops through the letterbox. And I turn around, and I scooped it all up. And I look at it and I go, and it's all got Orson Welles on it. <laughs> the I'm moment not, of realisation. I'm not always the sharpest tack in the box. <laughs> so I didn't put two and two together. I thought, idiot postman, he's dropped this through the wrong letterbox. <laughs> that moment the door opened and in the great man walked in wow. like a long coat and a big hat. And he looked down at me like I was something the cat had dropped. And... There were like a million questions I wanted to ask him. Like, you know, I'm at, I'm at film school. I, can, I, I wonder if you can help me get in the film business. And he stepped over me and said, good morning. <laughs> <laughs> Went up the stairs and bong, was gone. And so the next day I kind of rushed there and discovered he'd gone off to America. Oh. And I, I didn't see him again. And at the end of the month, Mrs. Wells said to me, she said, you know, I don't really think you're cut out for this. Oh, really? I got fired. Oh, <laughs> there you go. Well, uh, I know I was hoping maybe he'd shared some nuggets of information with you that you were going to, to tell us all about tonight. So you were, as we said, working in the movie and, and the television industry, but obviously the writing was still going on in the back of your head. Were you, were you pottering away the typewriter in the background or what was happening? Yes, I, I, I desperately wanted to write and I met my then-to-be wife and... She said, this is in about 1977, and she said, when are you going to write this novel you keep talking about? Mm. And there was an article in the Times that said there was a shortage of spy thrillers. Oh, Ian, why? Ian Fleming had died. Oh, and, um, there we go. Two years back. <laughs> he created a vacancy. Yeah, I thought, yeah, I could fill that. So I, I wrote a spy thriller. I basically made it all up. And to my amazement, it got published, called Dead Letter Drop. Please avoid it if you see it. <laughs> And to my even bigger amazement, it didn't sell. 
Right. And I had a two-book deal, and I wrote a second book called Atom Bomb Angel, tasteful title. And that sold even less, and I, I got really despondent. And I poured my heart out to um, a, a, a then friend of my sister-in-law called Elizabeth Buchan, who at that time, was, she's now a really successful author herself, but at that time she was writing the jacket blurb on The Penguin. And she said, why are you writing spy thrillers? Mm. I said, well, I, I thought I could make some money. <laughs> and she looked at me in despair and said, darling, you will never succeed writing something, A, that you're not passionate about, and B, that you cannot research. What can you ever know about the world of spies? You're up against people like John le Carre who've come out with security services. You've got to write what, A, what you're passionate about, and B, what you can research, because research underpins all good fiction. And that was a sanitary lesson. And the, just after I'd had that conversation, we got burgled. Hmm. Something I can recommend, we only just got married, so I can recommend being burgled to any newlywed, because it gives you the perfect excuse to explain why all those horrible ornaments you've been given. <laughs> have suddenly disappeared. You know, auntie, that porcelain donkey with the sombrero and the quartz clock in its stomach, they stole it. But this, this young detective, called, a guy called Mike Harris, came to the house to take fingerprints, and he saw my books. And he said, oh, is that you? And I said, mm-hmm. He said, if you ever want research help with the police, give me a call. Oh. And his, he was married to a detective, as, as many police officers Great. are. And my then wife and I, he invited us to a barbecue at their house, and all their friends were cops. Dif right across the disciplines, you know, there were homicide, response, Child protection, socos, You'd divers. research in one garden. Well, I just Literally. felt fasc talking yeah, to them, totally. fascinating. And I, and I suddenly realized nobody sees more of human life mm -hmm. in a 30-year career than a police officer. And, and when they realized I was genuinely interested, they started becoming friends with more and more police officers over the next two or three years. And they started inviting me out, spend a day in a patrol car. It got to the point where they phoned me up and saying, we're doing a raid tomorrow, do you want to come with us? <laughs> uh, yes, please. Yeah. Um, and what and happened? Did you, like, did you sit in the back of the car and just watch? Were you allowed to observe? I'd sit in the back of the car and watch and go to crime scenes and they'd sometimes ask my opinion as really? well. <laughs> and then um, I started putting more and more, I, I, was, I moved to writing kind of more psychological thrillers and I started putting police into my books more and more. Mm. And in 1996, um, one of my kind of police friends said, oh, there's this quite quirky detective you might like to meet. Guy, uh, guy, he was an inspe a young inspector in Brighton called Dave Gaylor. And I always remember going to his office and I'd never seen a tip like it. It was a reasonable size office. Every inch of it was covered in blue and green plastic crates bulging with manila folders. And I could just see this balding dome at the back. And I said, oh, are you moving office? He said, no, no, these are my dead friends. I thought, great, I've met the only weirdo in Sussex CID. Yeah, absolutely. And he then laughed and he explained, he said, I'm, I'm a homicide detective, but I've also been tasked with reopening all the unsolved murders in Sussex where there is still somebody alive who could benefit from the inquiry. Mm. Uh, and I'm applying the latest advances in DNA and fingerprint technology. Each one of these crates is the principal case file of an unsolved murder. <laughs> I'm the last chance the victim has for justice mm. and the family for closure. And I love that human image. And mm. he said, what are you writing at the moment? And I was in the middle of writing a thriller called Denial. He said, tell me about it. And I started telling his house. 
your character wouldn't have done that. And why has your detective not got an outside inquiry team? And I suddenly realized this guy had a really creative bandwidth to him. And it's something that, I, that I've learned subsequently about what makes a really good homicide detective. And it's two completely opposing characteristics. First is, a good detective is completely anal. Because every major crime is a huge puzzle of thousands of pieces often that have to be painstakingly put together. But so many times, crimes are solved by just blue sky out of the box thinking. And Dave had those two qualities. And we became friends, and he helped me over subsequent books. And in, 19, in 2002, he got promoted to Detective Chief Superintendent, head of major crime for Sussex. And my publishers, Pam McMillan, asked me if I'd ever thought of creating a detective as a central character. Mm -hmm. So I went to Dave and I said, uh, how would you like to be a fictional cop? And he loved it. Uh, and we've worked together closely on the Roy Grace novels ever since. The, Roy Grace is so career-wise model on him, not yeah. physically. Um, and we are best mates today. When, when Lara, who's here with me, got married, he was best man. Wow. And we, and we, we have a kind of ritual. We, we sit at a particular corner in a... Every time I start a new book, we sit at a particular table in a, a local pub with a new moleskin notebook. Mm -hmm. And we work out the plot. Uh, uh, then I go away and do the heavy lifting. Uh, and then he reads the first hundred pages and tells me how the police would think and act and go on from there. Because for me, that lesson I learned from Elizabeth Buckham all those years ago about research, mm -hmm. I think that for me in writing, there's an inseparable trinity of three things, which is character, research, and plot. And I put them in that order because I think that first and foremost, we read books to find out what happens to characters that we meet and engage with. Uh, at the end of the day, characters is the most key. If you have a character you really like, you could have him reading the phone directory for 300 pages <laughs> and he'd still be gripped. But the second thing is that research, and I put research way above plot, because I think people who read, like all of you lovely people here right now, the fact that, that we read means that, that we're intelligent. And I think we don't just, when I read a book, I don't just want to solve a puzzle. I want to read something about the human condition, something about the world in which we live, about why we do the things we do, whether it's murderers or whatever the characters are. And you can tell very quickly if a writer knows what they're writing about or not. It just comes through. I think there's a kind of something that any reader can sense. And you want it to feel authentic when you're reading. You've got, you yeah, know? and you yeah. know that immediately. Mm -hmm. And plot is important too, but if you don't care about the characters, if you don't believe the writer knows what he or she is writing, you ain't going to get as far as caring about the plot. You'll just put the book down. I, I always remember reading a book by an American thriller author, big author, who wrote a book set in England, and he had his first six chapters great. In chapter seven, he has a character driving up the M25 towards Birmingham. <laughs> Now, anyone who knows England will know that the M25 is a ring road around London. <laughs> you could be driving along it for 20 years and you ain't going to get to Birmingham. <laughs> I thought, he's not bothered to look at a bloody road map. Am I going to bother reading him anymore? So it's character, research and plot in that, yes. in that order. And in terms of the character then with Roy Grace, um, who, as you said, is based on your friend, when you sat down to write that first book with him, had you got a, a full series in mind or were you planning literally one book or two books or, or what were you thinking? 
No, my publishers gave me a, a two-book contract, and I thought really hard about what it is that, about detectives and, and all the ones that I'd gotten to know over the years. And the, there would seem to be a, a bit of a cliché in crime writing of, of having the, the cop with a Big drink cliche. problem. <laughs> cop with a drink problem and a broken marriage. And I wanted to get away from that. And I thought, you know, what police officers do is more than anything else, they solve puzzles. So I thought it'd be interesting to give Roy Grace a puzzle of his own they couldn't solve. So when we meet him in Dead Simple, he's just coming up to his 39th birthday, and we learn that his wife, Sandy, who he loved and adored, vanished on, on his 30th birthday nine years ago. And for nine years, he's been looking for her, tried everything, even going to mediums. And he still functions as an effective homicide detective, but he's dogged by this puzzle, can't move on in his life. And I planned to set the mystery up in book one and solve it in book two. And, and Dead Simple came out. And I got inundated with the emails from readers speculating what might have happened. And I thought, hmm, you know, I could have some fun with this. <laughs> and, and I kept it going. And I, I got some wonderful emails over the years. I had one about six years ago saying, Dear Mr. James, I've just worked out that I'm a lot younger than you. And I'm probably a lot fitter, which means you're going to die before me. So I hope you've left the secret of what happens to Sandy. <laughs> please tell us. Please tell us. So you've done, there's 14. It's literally been one a year. I'm just writing the 15th, finishing the 15th. Oh, the oh finishing it. Go on. Tell us. I'm, I'm, I'm writing my hotel room here at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's called Dead at First Sight. and It'll be out next May. Okay. We have to wait till then. Any outline of the plot? No. Any? Are you going to give us any? Oh, yeah, I'm writing about internet romance fraud, which oh. is the, the, the biggest growing crime in the Western world right mm, now. Not surprising. Not People surprising. who meet on dating sites and find out they're actually not talking mm -hmm. to the person they thought. Mm, okay, watch this space. Mm. And in terms of like 14 books, you know, and you said you started with one and, you know, you had, had the idea for, for the second one. How do you keep it going? You know, how do you come up, I suppose, with the, the different plots for each one, but also to keep him interesting and keep him fresh and to want, as you said, the, the reader to, to keep coming back year after year to find out what happens next? I, think, I, I remember as a kid reading some of my favourite authors like Alistair MacLean, I love them, and they seem to get to a peak and then they just mm. get lazy. And I've always tried my hardest to never let that happen. So it's, with me, I want to try to raise the bar with each, each book. Um, and I do love writing. I love, I love, every time I start a new book, I sit down and I go, okay, Roy, you know, how are you getting on? Norman Potting, who have you pissed off this last <laughs> month? Um, so I, they're like mates. Yeah. Um, and, but I always, I always do think with every book, I'm, start, I'm starting a new book. I think, shit, I got away with it last time. Now, now people are finally going to find out that I'm not actually any good. Yeah. There's sort of terror of that always. And, it, and it's funny, I was at a, at a Crime Writing Festival in Bristol last May with um, having a drink with Lee Child and with Martina Cole. As you do, as you uh, do, uh, yeah. And I just got to about page 50 on this new book. And I said, do you ever get to a point in the book where you think, shit, this is actually, I have got away with it before, this book is not going to work. And both Lee and Martina said, around page 50. Really? Yeah, so I okay. think it's a common affliction for all of us. That so we just need to get to page 51, yeah, all of get, us, get to 51 fine, and you're fine, you're yeah. done. <laughs> and do you get writer's block at all? Is there any, do you ever find that? I have a strong view on writer's block. Really? Which is, if you're a, a lawyer, do you get lawyer's block? <laughs> if you're a chartered accountant, do you get accountant's block? 
you're a cab driver, you get cab driver's block. Oh, I can't take any more passengers, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I make a living out of writing. I, That's I don't, your job. I don't have the opportunity to have writer's block. Yeah, I think, I think I get stuck on something. I, I have a vodka martini and... and, and, and <laughs> That's all and so, Or take the dog for a walk around, you know... Or have you had, a, I suppose, but, a scenario where you thought the plot was going to work and, and just then suddenly you, you don't know where to go or what to do with it? Well, I think the reason that, that in my, my theory about writer's block is, and I talk to many writers and they say, oh, I've got writer's block. And the first question I say is, do you know the ending of your book? And they will say no. Hmm, and I really? say, would you get in a car and start driving somewhere, having no idea where you're going? I mean, surely if you get in your car, you're going to go to the supermarket or you're going to go to London or Birmingham or wherever. Uh, and I think, that to me, knowing the ending of a book, if I've got the ending of a book and, I, and, I, and, I, and I've come... I, I, the way I like to work is I, I'll, I'll, I'll I make the key high points, the ending I want to get to, which may change when I get to it, mm -hmm. but at least I've got a vanishing point to get to. I think that's so important. If you have that, if you have the high points you want to get to, you're not going to get blocked. You might have stumbling blocks where mm. you've, you've got, how do I work this chapter out? But if you, if you know where you're heading, you, you won't get writer's block. Yeah, you'll get there, get there if, in the if end. If you are serious about writing. And, and, and it's important also to be hungry. I, I love Margaret Atwood's great conversation at a cocktail party with, with this, she meets this guy and he's a surgeon and it's, what do you do, what do you do? And, she says, I, I, I'm an author, what do you do? He says, I'm, I'm a brain surgeon. He says, actually, I'm, I'm planning to write a book when I retire. And Margaret Atwood said, yeah, well, I, I'm planning to be a brain surgeon when I retire. <laughs> <laughs> great line, great line. And do you feel, you know, pressure, I suppose, is that the right word, maybe, after every book, because you know the last one did well, you know there's an expectation from your readers for the next one, there's an expectation from your publishers probably as well, I'm sure. Do you, do you feel that pressure each time? Always. It gets harder. Does it? Yeah. I, I, I think that the day you find it easy is the day you should think, oh shit, is this any good? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky my, my wife, Laura, is a fantastic critic and she reads as I go along so I, I can tell from her how it's going. And I, and I have a small team of, of kind of readers, including Dave Gale mm -hmm. and my real life, Roy Grace. So I get feedback as I go along. But I think instinctively you know, but I think it's, to me it's just incredibly important to try to raise that bar. Mm -hmm. And has your style changed, do you think, then? over the years? You know, as you learn with each book, have you, have you adapted? I, I learn from feedback from, from readers, stuff they like and don't like. I know that South Africans don't like me using fuck. Really? Uh, uh, yeah, or any biblical word. Oh. Uh, so, you know, you kind of, it's, it's quite strange how, how different cultures have different sort of... And do you read all of that, that feedback? Some, some authors say they do, others say they don't yeah, want to know. Yeah, I, I do. I take it on because, it, you know, I get... I find some of that feedback really valuable. Mm. And I think you, you know, if you don't listen to your readers at all, that's a bit arrogant. Fair enough, yeah. Um, and with reviews then, obviously there's a huge amount of reviews that are out at the moment for your, your latest book. So, a religious thriller. Tell us. Yeah, I... The absolute proof started with a, a phone call I got in uh, 1989, out of the blue. Nearly 30 years ago? Yeah. Wow. Elderly sounding guy said, is that Peter James, the author? 
That was before I was ex-directory. Luckily. <laughs> and I said, yes. He said, thank God I found you. It's taken me two weeks. I found every Peter James in the phone book. How many was there, I wonder? <laughs> <laughs> I would have been counting. Uh, 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 he said, I'm, I'm not a lunatic. I, I was a fleet hour on pilot in the war. I'm a retired university academic. I have been given absolute proof of God's existence. And I've been told, you're the man to help me get taken seriously. I go, okay. He said, my name is Harry F. Nixon, and I need to come and see you. I'm going to need four days of your time. Four days. Four days. And Very I said, well, specific. Even for proof of God's existence, four days is quite a big ask. I thought he, would have said, <laughs> thought he might have said seven days to tie in with God, but anyway. <laughs> I said, do you want to tell me a bit more? And he said, yes. He said, my wife recently died of cancer, and before she died, we made an agreement that I would go to a medium and try and communicate with her. And I did this. And instead of my wife coming through, a male came through who said he was a representative of God, that Dob was very concerned about the state of the world. I felt if mankind could have faith in him reaffirmed, it would get us back on an even keel. And as proof of his bona fides, he gave me three pieces of information nobody on earth knows. And he said, there's an author called Peter James who helped you get taken seriously. Okay. Mr. James, you and I have to save the world. I go, well, yeah, uh-huh. you know, I'm, I'm up for it. Yeah, no problem. Um, now, I, a lot of people say, why didn't you hang up at this point? And the reason I didn't hang up was that I, I, I genuinely believe, and probably even more so as a writer, that everybody you ever meet in life has a story. Not necessarily a story that's going to make a book, but everyone has something that's happened to them mm-hmm. that's worth listening to. And I thought... I'll listen to you. I said, look, Mr. Nixon, I'll give you half an hour. And if you <laughs> not can, four days. If, 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 not four <laughs> days. If we need more time, we'll take it from there. And he said, fair enough. And he lived up in Stoke-on-Trent. And so I agreed to see him the following Tuesday afternoon at four o'clock. So I thought that would be a safe time. My then wife would have been home from work at half five and could have bashed him over the head if he had me in a kind of <laughs> headlock or something. She could rescue you. Anyway, long story short, he rocked up. Very nice man. And he, I said to him, you know, what are these three pieces of information? He said, I have been given the compass coordinates for the location of the tomb of Akhenaten, Tutankhamun's uncle, the first monotheist pharaoh. I've been given the location of the Holy Grail and the compass coordinates for the location of the Ark of the Covenant. Wow. I go, okay. That's a starting point. (laughs) Have you looked for any of these? He said, yes. He said, you know, I remember I was a pilot in the war, I can navigate. Um, the compass coordinates for the Holy Grail are at a place called Chalice Well in Glastonbury. Now, I'd never heard of Chalice Well at this point. Um, Chalice Well is a holy site on the edge of Glastonbury and Somerset where it's rumoured that Joseph of Arimathea brought the Holy Grail containing Christ's blood after the crucifixion and concealed it. He said, I've been dowsing and metal detecting on the exact spot and there's something underground. It's run by a group of trustees, and I've asked the trustees for permission to do an archaeological dig, but they won't take me seriously. <laughs> but I think they would take you seriously, Mr. James. So anyway, long story short, he trundles off, and by sheer, sheer chance, the next day I had to go to Bristol to do a BBC radio interview. And I finished the interview, and I'm talking to the presenter, like we're chatting now, and out of the blue she mentions Chalice Well. 
And I, this freaked really? me. And, you know, I'm, I've always been days. fascinated by coincidence. And I said, what do you know about Charles Well? She said, oh, my uncle's a trustee. <laughs> so now I'm going, clearly I'm the chosen one. You know? <laughs> and I tell her the story. She said, oh, I'll, I'll have a word with my uncle and see what he knows. And I left, and I was so freaked out. I phoned a friend of mine called Dominic Walker, who at that time was Bishop of Reading. I said, I need to come and talk to you. So I went and met up with him a couple of days later, and I told him, I said, what do you think? He said, well, firstly, faith is the proof is the enemy of faith. Secondly, I would want more than three sets of compass coordinates mm. to have proof of God. And I said, what would you want? He said, I, I would want something that defies the laws of physics of the universe, a pretty impressive miracle. And I said, if somebody could deliver that, what then? He said, well, I really think they'd be assassinated. Oh, really? Because whose God would it be? Yeah. You'd have every different faction of Anglican, Catholic, Judaic, Islamic, mm -hmm. Sikhs, and you'd have countries like China who would not want a higher power usurping their authority. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I've got my story. That was it. And that, that was the point, the starting point. I thought, I've got the makings of just a great thriller here. Yeah. That, though, was nearly 30 years ago. So when did you start writing it? Um, October 2016, <laughs> I, I spent... So what took so long? Uh, well, I was under constant contract to produce a, a new thriller, and then with the Roy Grace. Mm. But what really took the time was I had, for the book to work, um, I, I, I needed to understand all the world's religions. Mm -hmm. First, I didn't want to offend any of them and end up being Salman Rushdie situation. <laughs> but B, I wanted to actually really learn about the world's religions. Um, and so for the next 20-odd years, I, every clergyman I, talk, I could find who talked to, every atheist, every scientist who had faith, I would talk to them, and I'd ask them two questions. I'd say, what, what would you consider to be proof of God's existence? And what do you think would be the consequences if somebody could come up with that? And I realized that to make the book work, I had to have an ending that delivered. Mm -hmm something as big as the sun rising from the west one day. And when I met Laura, my, my, my wife, back in 2013, she was not a, a believer, but she became really interested in the subject. And we embarked together on a kind of, not a crusade, but a, kind of a series of meetings with Oxford and Cambridge theologians, scientists, hardcore atheists, whatever asking them the same questions. And one morning at breakfast, Laura just suddenly came up with this idea for what would be proof. And it just it was that light bulb moment. Um, and then I, I, I injured myself running and I, I, oh. I was gonna have an operation in October 16. And at the last minute, I had a second opinion and said I didn't think I needed it. And I'd canceled my diary for three months. And wrote it. I said, That's, and, and I wrote, Although it took the longest to write, it was the I normally takes me seven months to write the first draft of Roy Grace. I wrote the first draft of Absolute Proof in eight weeks. Really? Wow. Just literally sitting down every day. Well, God was helping me. You know. Oh, that's, this is true. <laughs> but it's, it's huge. Like it's, as you can see, it's 500-odd pages. So how many yeah. words a day were you writing? It just, it just kind of flew. Wrote itself. Mm. Mm, okay. I had, although it was the longest book, it was probably the book I had the most fun writing as well. Right. Because I've learned so much with it. Um, did you enjoy it as well? Because it was, you know, it, it was different to Roy Grace. It was a, it was a, a new challenge. 
Yeah, I do like writing standalones. Mm. I, I had a, I read a ghost story, The House in Cold Hill, mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. And I got the sequel to that coming out next year. Um, oh, really? Great. The Secret of Cold Hill. <laughs> I, 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 I love writing Roy Grace, but it's good to, to sometimes just step away and do something. Because there's some books in which I want to examine issues, and then with absolute proof, I wanted to really understand. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's in the same terrain as, I don't like to say the word Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code, in mm -hmm. terms of a twisty thriller, but it does take a real look at religion, and I learned so much through writing it. And did it impact your, your belief, whatever your belief is? Yeah, it has impacted my belief. I mean, I, I was at boarding school at Charterhouse where I had religion rammed down my throat. We literally had to go to church, chapel, mm -hmm. every day, and two hours on Sunday, morning and evening. And the teachers would sit and look at you, and if they thought you weren't praying hard enough, you'd get punished. Oh, gosh. So I left feeling, being atheist, being agnostic, being mm -hmm. atheist. And during the course of writing this, I, where, I, where my, my thinking changed to the point where I'm, I'm convinced that there is intel, something intelligence behind the cosmos. Mm. And I'm finding that, of many of, the, many of the people I've talked to, there's a growing groundswell of opinion of that. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the head of NASA's nine billion telescope project just four months ago said that she was coming to the opinion that there had to be an intelligence behind the cosmos. So we're going to have a sequel then? Absolutely. <laughs> we'll have to, to wait and find out. So just wondering, um, before we finish up, is there any, any burning questions in the audience? We have somebody over here. I think there is a roving mic, actually, that's going to come around here. Or shout it out if you, if you, if you want. If you shout it out, yeah, I'll repeat we'll the question. Yeah. Um, do you believe in the paranormal? Do I believe in the paranormal? Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely have a fascination with it. I lived in a seriously haunted house for 10 years. Did you? Uh, yeah, in Sussex. And nobody's going to tell me that ghosts don't exist. We had... Well, in fact, when we bought the house, the owner said, oh, you're like this place, who what? You're right, we got three ghosts. It turned out he lied. We had four. Um, <laughs> but I, I do. I, mean, I, I also believe in Arthur C. Clarke's maxim that you know, what we call the supernatural, the paranormal magic is something for which we do not yet have an explanation in science. Um, but I think the evidence for the existence of ghosts, I mean, I've seen a ghost with my own eyes in, in that house. Did you? In what form? Like what, what happened? Again, long, long story short, the day we moved in, um, this, we bought this, I, I, when I had my first kind of writing success for possession, we, we did the kind of writer's dream of buying the big old wreck in the country mm -hmm. that the house on Cold Hill is actually based on. <laughs> and I was standing with my mother-in-law, who had a face eye to her. She was a chief magistrate of Brighton and Hope, but mm -hmm. she used to have a dream if anybody was going to die. A member of the family or something she knew. And we were standing watching the removals men carry the stuff in. And there was a long hallway which open, opened into this like anteroom, which then went through to the kitchen. And the, the removals men were carrying stuff in. And I suddenly saw this shadow just move across that room. And she said, did you see that? And I, and I, and I knew she'd seen something. And mm -hmm. we'd, we'd always been townies. This is the first time we kind of moved out to the country. And I, I, last thing I wanted was my kind of wife to be spooked out on yeah. day one. So I said, no, I didn't see anything. And the next day, my wife was a lawyer, had gone off to work, and I was upstairs in my office, and I had to go through this anteroom to get to the kitchen. I went down to make a cup of coffee about 10 o'clock. saw all these pinpricks of light floating in the air. Mm. And I took my glasses off, put them back on, and they'd gone. 
Same thing happened at lunchtime, and then again in the afternoon, and my wife came home from work, and I thought, I won't say anything. And the next day, same thing again, and I, we had a dog, and I took him for a walk down the lane, and this old boy came up to me and said, are you Mr. James? And I said, yes, you just bought the manor? And I said, yes. How are you getting on with your grey lady? And I said, what grey lady? And he said, oh, I used to house sit for the previous owners, and that anteroom for the kitchen we made in a snug in the winter when they were away. And I had an armchair in there and a telly and said, one evening, one Sunday evening, this woman in grey silk crinoline just came out the wall, glided past me, flicked my face with the edge of her dress in anger and vanished in the wall behind me. He said, I was out there, wild horses not getting me back in that house again. And this is where you were living, right. So I, I still didn't tell my wife when she came home because I thought maybe this guy's a bit of a nutter. The following Sunday, and this, these lights, I kept seeing them all constantly, this tiny... Some tiny a pinprick, some mm. about a thumbnail. And the following Sunday, my in-laws came to lunch, and I took my mother-in-law aside, and I said, what did you see that day we were moving in? And she described this woman in silk crinoline exactly. So I then decided right. to tell my wife, and she said, well, actually, I've seen her several times. I didn't <gasps> want to tell you and spook you out. <laughs> and you stayed there for 10 years. Why? Well, it was interesting. Apparently, it was, it was a, a man-hating woman who was, who was the ghost, and all three couples before us got divorced. Okay. Yeah, and then we did too. Um, I, I wasn't bothered by it, actually. I, mean, I was fascinated rather than scared, but we had house sitters when we went away who moved out. Right. Uh, okay. And there were a whole bunch of other stuff that went on constantly. So there we go. Hmm. Any more questions? All quiet on the, on the Western Front. Just want to... Yeah, great question. What happened to the old man who got me involved in Absolute Proof, Harry Nixon? When I, when I finished the book, um, we decided, um, a, a wonderful assistant, I tasked him with seeing if he was by any chance still alive. Um, I didn't think he would be, but, um, and she found out that he died about six years ago. And very brightly, she lived in Stoke-on-Trent, and she found uh, the estate agent who'd sold his house and said, look, if, if any relative would like to speak to Peter James, and she left my phone number. And two weeks before Christmas this last year, I get a phone call from this guy called James Connor. He's a doctor in Cambridge, and he's the grandson. Oh, wow. And he, he was absolutely delighted. And he said, he said, I've actually got to come down to Sussex because my sister lives in Worthing. So he and his sister and brother came to tea with Laura and I two days after Christmas this last year. And they said, Grandad, very interesting, they said, Grandad was not a flake in any way. We met some of his air crew who flew with him in the war, and they said he was the guy who'd want the plane in a crisis. And they said he wasn't even religious, but he genuinely believed he had been tasked with, with telling the world that, that, that God was real. Um, and they, they were absolutely delighted that, that I'd kind of written the book. Mm. Um, and there were some very strange coincidences that came with it. Um, one was that I changed his name in the book to Harry Cook. And it turned out Harry Cook was the name of the medium that he'd gone to see. Really? Wow. <laughs> and another spooky one was his brother who came down 
as well to tea. Um, when Laura and I first met, before we met, she used to work for Purina Pet Food and was uh, handled the Tesco account. He was the buyer for the Tesco account for Purina Pet Food. <laughs> so it's well, kind of very like strange connections. Yeah. So, hey, who knows? So in terms of next then, so you said that you're finishing the next Roy Grace at the moment in the hotel room in Dublin. So is that where it's going to be completed then? We can have that claim to fame, can Very, we? Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Good. And what, what happens then after that? Um, the next one. Mm-hmm. I've got the sequel, the sequel to Cold Hill coming out next year as well. Um, um, I can't kind of go into details yet, but Roy Grace is in, in development for television right now. Oh, right. So we'll be coming to television in 2020. 2020. Sunday night, sort of prime time. Yeah. BBC, ITV, Can't tell you. States. If I tell you, I have to kill you. And everyone <laughs> oh in dear, don't want that to happen. <laughs> don't get out alive, guys. You know, sorry. Um, and any idea of who the actor might be? Not yet, but um, soon. Hopefully we'll make an announcement in the next two or three months. I Great. Think. And would it, is it going to be filmed in Brighton? Yeah. Absolutely. Brilliant, yeah. yeah. And was that one of the things that you wanted to make sure happened? Yeah, because originally, 20, 15 years, the reason it's taken so long is that um, the way television works is that they'll do anything to get it made, whether they have to get it made. Mm-hmm. I remember about 12 years ago getting an excited phone call from one of the three-year-olds running the BBC saying, oh, yeah, um, we've got all the money to make Wade Wave um, from BBC Scotland. And I said, why would BBC Scotland want to make a crime series set in Brighton? They have had this idea about moving Wygwaith to Aberdeen. I said, has anybody read the books? <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, we think it would work fine. I said, do you know what I think? Foxtrot Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> And that was the end of that. Um, and then just finally, before I let you go, the emus and the alpacas. Tell us all. He has loads of them in his garden, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I, my wife, Laura, and I love animals. Uh, and um, we have dogs, three dogs, and we have um, a load of hens, and we have a load of ducks. Um, and we decided we need to get some more want to get some more Indian runner ducks, the ones with the long necks, yeah. wonderful. And we went to this farm that breeds them, and they had these three baby emus. Oh. And I made the mistake of saying, are they for sale? <laughs> <laughs> um, and we now have those at home. And then um, we went and stayed, actually, with my former publicist down in the West Country, and he has alpacas. And Laura and I just fell in love with these... Add them to the family. ...soppy creatures, so we... Yeah. We then got, we've got, uh, we, have an, we have five alpacas. One is called Al Pacino. Right, no surprises. Well, we have uh, Fortescue. <laughs> um, we have Jean-Luc, Boris and Keith. Boris is, who's Boris he, after now? He looks like certain. Does he? Okay, yeah. right. <laughs> He's a bit more intelligent than Boris Johnson. Keith, <laughs> Keith Wood? No? Who's Keith after? Yeah, well, we just like the name Keith. But we, we now discover we've got a neighbour across the lane called Keith. So when we call Keith, he goes, yes, hello. <laughs> well, Peter James. James, ask a question. Oh, there's another go for it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, just a real simple question. Um, when you're doing your writing, uh, do you, would you do it with a pencil or would you, know, you on a computer or do you typewriter or do you, do you dictate? 
Chilam was asked how, how I write. When I, my dad, on my 17th birthday, gave me the, the best present I ever had, which was a little portable electric typewriter and this big battle axe of a woman to teach me to touch type. <laughs> and she literally covered all the keys in tapes. So I couldn't see them. And she'd stand over me. And if I looked down the keys, she'd go, no! <laughs> uh, and I learned very quickly to type fast. And it stood me in great stead ever since. So I, I, I typed straight on a, on, a, on, a work, on a Mac PowerBook these days. But you still have your moleskin notebooks, though, for I, your Yeah, your I still notes. do write sometimes, sometimes by hand. Yeah. But, but I... I actually like the, I like the whole thing of typing. And in terms of editing then, do you like, do you like the, you said you did the first draft obviously of, of, of Absolute Proof in literally eight weeks. So in terms of then the rewrite and the editing, do you, do you enjoy that or do you find it tedious? No, I, I, I quite like the, the editing process, uh, except when the editor wants something major structurally changed, which mm-hmm. occasionally happens. Then it's like unravelling a kind of whole <laughs> bunch of knitting. It's, it's a nightmare, but... Luckily, that doesn't happen very often. I, I quite enjoy the editing process because the heavy lifting's been done mm-hmm. and you can almost relax a bit. And, but it, it's, you do miss things. I mean, like absolute proof, anyone who reads the current printed version might notice in page 50, and I, I, I referred earlier to the... the 50 sun, pages? The, to the sun <laughs> rising from the west. Uh, in the book, I've got a character talking about this, and he tells about, he says, it, would be as, it had to be something as unusual as the sun rising from the east. And I just had an email yesterday from somebody pointing this out. <laughs> Don't well, you have a proofreader, Mr. James? <laughs> it's, it's, it, you do get picked up on so much. Yeah, dear Mr. James, your novel Twilight, page 147, I would like to point out that brass does not corrode, it rusts. So it does not rust, it corrodes. And, and, and then I don't think the gentleman was in the audience tonight who's recently sent me an eight-page letter. Eight died, pages? Handwritten with diagrams explaining the difference between cement and concrete. (laughs) Did you read it? The whole lot of it? I still don't know the difference. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, Peter James, that was fascinating. Thank you so much for being here at uh, the Murder One Crime Festival this weekend. Lots going on for the rest of the weekend, as you well know. But uh, for the moment, thank you for being here. Thank you. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at InsideBooksIRE. If you want to hear other episodes, just search for us on SoundCloud or iTunes and don't forget to leave us a rating or review. I'm Brida Brown. Until next time, keep reading. Inside Books is a unique media production 